Well, good morning again, everyone. Good morning, everyone at home watching. The streak is still alive. Uh, I had, we had a baptism in the first service, a little uh, Ava, and uh, she did not cry. So I'm, I'm, I'm going on 20 years now of babies not crying when I baptize them, which is a big deal, people, because every baptism I ever did early in ministry, the babies always cried. The adults always cried too, but the babies cried. And I thought, what is going on here? I grew up uh, going to an Episcopalian church, and so I was an altar boy, and the, the priest would do baptisms all the time, and the babies always cried in church. And it was only after I baptized my own son, Jonathan, that I realized I might be doing it wrong. You see, the way they did this in the Episcopal church, and maybe some of us who grew up uh, Catholic or Lutheran, you see a lot of baptisms of of, of babies. The way the priest would do it, he would he would hold the child over the baptismal font, which was some kind of giant uh, oyster shell, a massive shell. And he, imagine he, the child's head would be in his palm of his hands, and he's dangling this child dangerously over the water. So imagine arms flailing, legs flailing. That's just the way they, they hold it like this and take the cold water and put the water on the child's head. Babies cried every time. And so when I became a pastor, I had the great honor to uh, both dedicate and baptize uh, people in my church and babies in the church. And I would have these kids and I would do just like I was taught to do, just dangle the kid over the water and, and, and baptize and they'd cry. Something's not working because Jonathan never cries. And here's what it is. No one, no matter what your age, wants to be held in suspension over a pool of water. And so I learned... Here's the secret. You hold the child up where they can see you and they can be mesmerized by my giant forehead. Like, shiny, shiny thing. And I would bring the warm water up to the child. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Even Ava, who cried at first when I held her out in the lobby, that didn't count. That's preseason. In the real deal. And so isn't that a picture of the gospel? He doesn't leave us hanging, dangling. The Father embraces us, bringing the water, bringing the Holy Spirit to us. We're back in our series, A Place for Everyone. And we're also back in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, which we looked at last week. We looked at uh, the miracle of Jesus healing a man with leprosy. And those of you who were here last week or you're watching from home, remember that uh, in the scene, Jesus is just... uh, preached the greatest sermon ever proclaimed, and he's come down the mountain, and the first person to greet him is a man uh, with leprosy who would be an outcast in society. He falls at Jesus' feet and says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And the text said that Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man, and he was healed. And I wanted to really make it make sense of what was really going on there, the, the healing not just of the physical and the spiritual, but even the social. That that word in Greek of touching wasn't just a passing touch, but really it was a, it was used in other places in Scripture to to grab hold. But Jesus reached out and grabbed hold of the man. And I, by way of illustration, uh, David Wright during the service came and stood in front of the table with me. Now before the service, I sent a text message to his daughter Morgan, who's at Colorado State. I said, Morgan, you gotta watch today's sermon, friends just by way of another announcement for those care packages, our kids that are far from home absolutely love 
those care packages that we send and feel that love from the church. So there's Morgan. She, I text with her. She says, I'll, I'll watch Pastor Pete. And I demonstrated that this wasn't just a passing touch, but Jesus drew near. And any of us here, myself included, who've been to the Near East, who've been to Palestine or Israel, I have friends that are from Lebanon. They are close talkers. They want to get close to you. And so I wrapped my arm around David Wright to show that this is what that word really meant. He, he reached out and grabbed hold of the man. I learned later that day, Morgan did watch the service in her dorm room. And her friends were so curious, they were watching the service over her shoulder. And they're watching the scene and they're looking at each other and saying, what is your pastor doing with, with your dad? I don't, we don't understand what's happening in this, in this scene. But it opened up this wonderful opportunity for, for Morgan to talk about the compassion of Jesus, the loving embrace of the Lord Jesus. And it was a wonderful testament of how powerful the gospel is. And even through this medium of, of being able to live stream services uh, hundreds of miles away, one of our students who grew up in this church having the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with her friends. It's such a joy to return to the pulpit after three months away, especially to start right out of the gate with talking about Jesus and how he touches our lives and how he addresses the real human experience. I felt it last week. I'm feeling it now. The words of scripture are coming off the page and are addressing real human need here in this place. Even the title of our series, A Place for Everyone, seems to be resonating within our community. Is there a place for me? Where do I fit in? Like the leper, where do I fit in? I, I have things that are hidden away, but I'm not welcomed here. Say, no, there is a place for you, and we'll see it again in this morning's text. Pastor David is upstairs right now leading our next U class for uh, those that are interested in, in uh, formally joining um, our church community up, upstairs right now. And earlier this week, he and I were visiting with um, some friends from the church and the brother said to me and David, he said, I don't know how you guys can get up in the pulpit every week and have something fresh to say out of the Bible. How do you do it? Well, this is how I do it. It's the words of scripture coming to life, practical, alive, refreshing, coming from the Lord and touching our lives. And that's really what the Gospels are about, and that's particularly what the Gospel of Matthew is about, touching people's lives, showing both the compassion of Jesus and the authority of Jesus, showing the teaching ministry of Jesus and the healing ministry of Jesus. Showing how Jesus said, this is what's happening. The kingdom of God is close at hand. The kingdom of God is broken through. And then demonstrating what that looks like in real time and space. Matthew is a genius in the way he wrote his gospel. He, he bookends these two concepts uh, in his gospel. Let me point you to chapter 4, verse 23. This is just before the Sermon on the Mount. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. There he is, he's teaching, he's proclaiming, he's, he's laying out this, this new way of living and then healing every disease and sickness among the people. So Matthew lays it out. That's what Jesus is all about. Laying out his authority and his compassion, laying out teaching and then touching people and bringing healing. 
Then you have the Sermon on the Mount, chapters of the greatest sermon ever preached. Then two chapters, eight and nine, of healing ministry. And then it ends with chapter nine, verse 35. Almost the exact same words. Jesus went throughout all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Same wording. What's going on? What's going on is Matthew is signaling to his readers and to all of us, Jesus is one who speaks with authority and then backs it up. Who's this Jesus? Who does he think he is that he could speak like Moses? We've never heard teaching like this. And then backing it up with miracles to show he is indeed the one, the promised Messiah. That's what we'll see in the passage this morning. So let's open our Bible to Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. It'll be on the screen, and you can follow along as I read. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying uh, paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. To the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This story is full of surprises. If you're taking notes, there are at least seven in all, so you could just uh, make notes in your notebook or in your bulletin, one through seven. Let's look at the surprises in this passage. Surprise number one, the centurion approached Jesus. Now, what's a centurion? Maybe you've thought of like a Roman costume for Halloween. A centurion is an officer in the Roman military with at least 100 men under his charge. The centurions occupying Palestine at the time were hated. They were thought to be pagans, which they were. And they weren't pagans, they were at least bullies. He was the wrong race, the wrong religion, wearing the wrong uniform, there is no place that people would believe for someone of his kind in Capernaum, which was uh, the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus made his, his home base for much of his ministry. No, for a, for a centurion to come near to any Jew would be terrifying, absolutely terrifying, barging into your house, taking advantage, taking resources away out of your home. This were people to be feared and avoided. If one came near, you'd, you'd say, come and see the, the violent inheritance in the system. Help, help, I'm being repressed. 
to my Python reference. Sorry, that, that did not work in the first service either. <laughs> first surprise is that Pastor Pete tried to do that lame joke a second time. First surprise, he appeals to Jesus. He appeals to him. Surprise number two, the centurion who's pledged his whole career, more than just his career, his life, he's willing to lay down his life for the emperor. And at that time, the second emperor of Rome was Tiberius Caesar Augustus. This is the second emperor of Rome. Willing to lay down his life for the empire. This centurion calls Jesus, what? What does it say? Lord. Twice. Verse six and eight. Now, in Matthew's gospel, when, when you see someone use the word Lord, it's always a believer in Jesus. When it's a non-believer, they refer to him as rabbi or teacher. But here already, out of the gate, Matthew is saying that a centurion, surprise beyond surprise, has approached Jesus and is calling him Lord. What a surprise. He's appealing to Jesus because he sees he is one with authority. Third surprise, he approaches Jesus, he, he appeals to Jesus, here's the surprise, on behalf of his servant, lying paralyzed back at home, he says, suffering terribly. And in, in Luke's version, it says that the centurion sent uh, messengers to Jesus. Here, Matthew sort of says, no, I, I want people to see Jesus interacting with people. It's, it's him himself coming and saying, my servant is lying paralyzed, suffering terribly. What's the surprise? What's the surprise in that? In the Greco-Roman world, slave owners had no regard for the lives of their slaves. They treated them like property. Now, I'm not suggesting that there's a good type of slave owner back then or in our own history or any time. I'm, I'm simply pointing out that in that ancient context and in our own, this would be incredibly surprising. The Greek philosopher Aristotle, in his work Ethics, Ethics, quote, quoting his ethics, quote, there should be no friendship and no justice toward inanimate things. Makes sense, you don't want to like, you know, make a friend out of a chair. As well as a horse, ox, or slave. Those were the ethics of ancient Greco-Roman worldview. Never to make a friend out of an ox, a horse, or a slave. Roman writers, Averro and Cato, maintain that the only difference between a slave and a beast of burden and a cart was that a slave could talk. You see the surprise. Why would this high-powered soldier's soldier have any concern for one of his slaves. And it actually says in the Greek that the slave was a boy. You just go to the marketplace and buy a new one. But no, he comes to Jesus. He approaches Jesus. He appeals to his authority, calling him Lord. And he does it not for himself, not for his own uh, regard or reward, but on behalf of one of his servants. So far, this message is really mostly about the centurion than it is about Jesus, isn't it? We're seeing the impact. Imagine like a, a giant drop of water that hits a lake or a rock that hits a lake and, and the ripple effect 
And here's, here's the, the rock or the penny dropping of Jesus's message uh, to the people. And we're seeing here the ripple effect and how it impacts. And that question, who's this Jesus who has authority? Here's a centurion that we see at the end of the gospel. I believe it's the gospel of, of Luke. It's centurion who says, surely this was the son of God. Fourth surprise, Jesus responds and says, I will come and heal him. Verse seven, now that is very, very surprising. You think, well, no, that's what Jesus does. He's healed. Yes, he is, but very, very surprising. In last, week, last week's passage, the passage that precedes this, the first few verses of chapter eight, we see the incredible surprise that Jesus not only reaches out, but he grabs hold of this leper, but there were provisions made for the healing of these types of diseases in, Luke, in uh, Leviticus chapter 14. So as unusual as that was, and as, as so much of a horror, people would gasp that Jesus was willing to touch someone and become ceremonially unclean, the man did become clean, and there was provision for him to go to the synagogue, show himself to the priests, pay, uh, pay for the temple, and be restored. But there was zero provision for any respectable Jewish person to enter the home of a Gentile pagan. And here he says, I will come and heal him. I'll come to your house, Jesus says. I am willing to come to that place that the people around me are saying is forbidden. Fifth surprise, the centurion won't let Jesus come to his home. That's a surprise. Because he says, quote, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. What a surprise. Surely this man had wealth. He had servants. He had position and power in that community. I bet his, his crib was really nice. Yeah, you come check it out. He says, no, no, no. Why? I'm unworthy to have you. I'm unworthy to have someone of your position, your stature. It'd be like having royalty come to my house. No, no, Lord. You know, in Matthew chapter eight, verse 20, I think it is. Jesus says this about the cost of following him. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, homeless, poor, nothing to distinguish him as being special in any way of his outward appearance and clothing. And yet the centurion has eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart softened by the pole, the magnetic pole of Jesus to say, Lord, I'm not worthy to even have you come to my home. I think, what will heal our nation? So many ways that we're divided. So many fights between people. So many ways that we look at those in authority. We think, I'm not even sure I want to trust people in this room to make decisions about my life, let alone someone in Olympia, let alone someone on the other side of the country. Like, I'm not sure about authority. I'm not sure who I can trust. How are we going to make this right? Through election, through law, through legislation? I submit it's by the gospel because this is a man with all authority, all the power. He can snuff out the lives of all those that Jesus cares about. And instead, it is the power 
of Jesus's person being there as the one, this man is transformed. A sign of true spiritual growth. Someone's asking you, how are you doing? How are your kids doing? What's happening in your small group? What's happening in your church? How would I know that this is a church that's growing closer to God versus a versus a person, an individual, or even a group of people that are, are not growing closer to God. And here I would submit to you, it's humility. Be one of the main characteristics. We think of all of the fruit of the Spirit and all those things, but I'd say here is a man who's been humbled. He knows that he's in the presence of royalty. Sixth surprise, look at verses eight to 10. He says, Lord... Just say the word and my servant will be healed. This man didn't grow up going to synagogue. He didn't grow up going to church. He didn't understand the, the nature of Jesus' teachings he's just had on the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, but I say to you, this man was a pagan from Rome. He'd have no context to put all the right Sunday school answers. And yet he says here, say the word and my servant will be healed. Zero religious training and here is an exemplary example of faith. He says, Jesus, just say the word, and it will be so. And he speaks not from any type of religious background. What does he speak from? He speaks from his experience. What's his experience? He's been in the military, perhaps his whole life. Perhaps he comes from a line of, of military men. That's the life experience he has. He says, I know about command. When I tell my men, jump, they say, how high? I know how to identify that, not by rank or by uniform. And I know you are one with authority. Matthew says, throughout these stories that we're looking at, faith is acknowledging Jesus's authority and his compassion. And when Jesus heard this, the Bible says, Jesus marveled. He marveled. Only two places in the gospel rec record does Jesus marvel. Is he astonished? Is he sort of like, wow, for just a moment. Here, and also in Luke's version of the same story, so, but it would be here with a centurion and Mark chapter six, verse six. You know what that passage is about? When Jesus marveled the second time? It's when he shared the gospel and his power to heal in his hometown and the people rejected him. He marveled at their unbelief. Is a centurion, a pagan, wrong uniform, wrong religion, from the wrong place. He's the one that shows faith that makes Jesus marvel. And the only other example is his family. We love talking about family. So we can see how this cuts deep in his hometown, his own people, his own family, rejecting him. Jesus only compliments two people in all of the Gospels for their faith. Only twice does he compliment someone for their faith. Here and in Matthew chapter 15, verse 28. Do you know what that passage is? It's the faith of a Canaanite woman, a non-Jewish person. And it's very significant that the only two times Jesus compliments someone in their faith and says, this is what faith looks like. People, take a look. This is what it looks like. My disciples, 
None of you have gotten close to what this looks like, this pagan from Rome and this Canaanite woman. It's very significant that the marveling of faith is among non-Jewish people. It's almost as though the gospel writers are saying there is a place for everyone, every kind of person. Not even his own disciples has shown such spiritual sight and love and humility and depth of allegiance as this Gentile soldier. He has faith. There's a place for him. Jesus is long-awaited Messiah, promised throughout the Old Testament scriptures, fulfilled in his coming, his teaching, his miracles, confirmed on his death on the cross and his rising on the third day. And this pagan centurion knew none of that. And yet Jesus, of all people who knew what was going on everywhere all the time, lets his disciples and lets you and me in on a secret. Wow. Faith is trust and allegiance to me. Seventh surprise, verses 11 to 12. Jesus compares heaven to a banquet feast. This is a theme throughout the Bible. Isaiah 25, 69. It says, the Lord of hosts will make a feast, a wedding feast for all peoples. It's foreshadowed all the way back in the book of Isaiah, a prophecy that there will one day be a feast on Mount Zion where all the peoples will be represented. And then the last book of the Bible, Revelation 19.9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When heaven comes to earth, there will be a great banquet. The seventh surprise is who's in and who's out. The faith of this pagan predicts that Israel will be hardened spiritually, the gospel won't penetrate to them, but then the gospel will be, by extension of the early church, extended to the Gentiles. So just like Rahab's name is included in the genealogy of Jesus, and just as Ruth's name is included in the genealogy of Jesus. And the wise men from the East are included in Matthew's retelling of the incarnation. Here, the centurion, all demonstrating that the kingdom of God is not limited by social and economic and nationality or boundaries. All people who respond to the message of Jesus are welcomed in. There is a place for everyone at that end-time messianic banquet. And yet Jesus includes a terrible warning. The sons of the kingdom, a, a Semitic term for national Israel, will lose their claim on the kingdom unless they follow the centurion's example of faith. And so the surprise, number seven, is the super-religious aren't in unless they bow the knee before Jesus and call him Lord. However, this Gentile soldier, by his faith, will join the great multitudes of the nation. The story is filled with surprises. I counted seven. Did you take notes of the seven? Seven in all that I can see. But the last point of the story isn't really a surprise at all. But the last verse is sort of, Matthew just sort of adds that on. Oh, and the, the servant was healed immediately. Or you get this far into the gospel, and they're like, oh, that's just, of course that happened. There's no surprise there whatsoever. 
Because whatever Jesus says happens. When he speaks, things happen. Jesus says the word and things happen. Be clean. The leper is healed. It's done. The servant is able to move again. Be still. The storm is quiet. Be gone. The demon flees. Come out. And Lazarus walks out of the tomb. Follow me. And a tax collector turns into a gospel writer. So here's a challenge for us today. MVC, as Rob comes on up here with a team. Are you willing to take Jesus at his word? It's as simple as that. No quiz, no test, no Sunday school answers. Yes or no, are you willing to take him at his word? And deep, deeper or more nuanced in that, to say what does it mean to take him at his word? What does it mean to really recognize Jesus' compassion and to really submit to his authority? What does it look like in your life right now? What evidence is there in your life right now that you are saying, yes, I take you, Jesus, at your word? This passage is telling us to look to the most unlikely of people who was welcomed in by Jesus into the fold. Following his example of this surprising saint, we're to appeal to him alone to no other authority. We're to call him Lord. We're to care for other people more than we care for ourselves or or living by the ethic of the times. We're willing to go beyond that. It looks like recognizing Jesus is willing and able to restore and to have a high confidence. Yes, Jesus, you are powerful. You are strong. You've now adopted me into your family. I can call a father my father, and yet there's also this humility in that. I'm still so unworthy of that, Lord. I'm not going to take that for granted. I'm not going to hold that over anyone. These are all examples of what it means to take Jesus as word. So my question to you, what does it mean for you right now, today, where you're sitting, where you are at home, to take Jesus at his word? I challenge you this morning to come to him in the quietness of a moment, close your eyes and pray. Lord Jesus, hear me now. Just say the word. Something amazing will happen. Will you do that? He's here. He's present now. And even as you said, Pastor Pete, I've prayed that prayer before. The answer he's given me is wait or no. Look to the people beside you in our church family, in your small group, to see evidence in their life, to hold out, to look at the evidence in Scripture. Bless you.